Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, uh, we're back from our break. And uh, as, as you know, part of a little bit of a wintry theme, my question here to, do, to you is, uh, uh, that's just the tip of the... <laughs> well, I've been watching Game of Thrones again, so I want to say spear, but I think you're probably going for iceberg. Oh, yeah. Tip of the iceberg is the Patreons we have so far compared to what we're going to have as Patreons in 2019. Oh, I like where your head's at, sir. What do you got for me this week? Well, in honor of our guest this week, I'm gonna I'm gonna go deep again, but some lyrics I think you'll probably know. I recall Central Park and Fall, how you tore your dress. What a mess. What a mess. My heart says Dunkashane? Well, my heart says thank you every time you donate at Patreon.com. We appreciate those contributors and Donka Shane to those contributors at Patreon.com. Absolutely. I love that scene. Uh, that's, I, w- I, was, I, I got to admit, I was somewhat disappointed my first time in Chicago that uh, there was no parade for me to, uh, to join in and, and begin singing with. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, that is a it is a classic scene uh, for for the young folks. That's Ferris Bueller's Day Off that we're referring to. I, we I can assume that most listeners don't actually know that movie. But uh, being a Germanish song, I thought in honor of Switzerland, there are really no famous Swiss songs famous to Americans. Well, there, are, I'm sure there are many famous Swiss songs to Swiss people, right, right, but right. I, I don't know any. Oh, uh, okay. I was well. You know what you could have gone with is uh, is is the 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 metal classic, "Smoke on the Water," right? Oh, I didn't even think about that Montro. Yeah, because uh, it all yeah, takes place one. right there in Switzerland. It tells the story. Right there. You'll have a good song that tells a story, you know, and uh, oh. some um, you know idiot with a. Uh, How's this how's the song go? Flare gun. gun, right? Burn the place to the ground. Well, wow, we are old. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first question for you, Glenn, is is how was uh, how are the holidays for you? Uh, they're the holidays. They're the holidays. <laughs> yeah, I got through them. I survived. Survived another holidays. Uh, it, it was. Um, I spent a little bit of time with my oldest. We actually went skiing uh, in Colorado. That was fun. We had a little getaway trip. That was his one of his well, his big his big Christmas gift. Right. So we, uh, I went out to Colorado for a little business, and then went skiing, and that was uh, it was great. I never actually skied in the mountains before. I I've only skied in Minnesota, and oh. so it was a big it was a big change for me. Uh, I, I, and also reality check. I'm not as good as a skier as I thought I was. <laughs> uh, my legs were jelly by the end of some of those runs. The runs are just so much longer. They're, you know, 15, 20. Well, if you're a good skier, they're 15 minutes to get down. As a poor skier, it takes you about 45 minutes to get down. Just going very slowly. And, and I, you know, I can do blues here. No problem. But blue runs there, the longer ones, really kicked my butt. I can imagine. I can imagine. That's funny. My my uh, my dad was uh, just texted some uh, 
some uh, pictures of of him and my cousin actually skiing uh, up in Snowbowl in Flagstaff and. And we got some good snow, looks like, this year. Yeah, I heard you guys got a lot of snow in Arizona. Yeah, yeah, there were lots of Facebook pictures of snow on cactuses, and and uh, that was more down in the Tucson area. But still, even just Crazy. in Phoenix, uh, if you looked off in the distance, you could see snow on the mountains, and that's always a, that's always a nice thing. Um, did you have a good holiday? I did. Uh, you know, it's it's the, the, the traditional Ray family holidays, which involves a lot of just driving around town. And having four or five, I think we ended up with five Christmases this year. Uh, it's just with you know a big family. That's just what what ends up happening because all my grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and and you know etc. are all in town basically. So um, you know you've been, you got to try to see as many of them as possible and. Uh, because uh, I guess you know that's what the holidays are for. But um, you have know, made it through all that, uh, played some new board games, and uh, um, cool. had a lot of fun. So and ate some ate some good food too. Well, I, I actually was just talking to someone uh, today. Um, uh, he uh, he was just telling me that he listens to our podcast when he when he walks to work. And I, I was I was pretty pleased to hear that. So just a little shout out to Henry uh, Petrowitz if he happens to be listening. And uh, hey, hey Henry, and uh, th- thanks for your uh, your support and thanks for uh, thanks for listening to us. Absolutely, thanks Henry. I <laughs> with some of our recent discussions, I was almost thinking that you were going to say being in LA because you're out recording this in the LA area right now. That you had run into uh, Simon Cole and you had some more info. <laughs> All about his lunches. No, that uh, I'm. I, but I will. Uh, I will be talking to someone very soon who I will send in to spy and to figure out what he is eating for lunch this year. Sounds good. I, I don't even know how we got interested in, in wondering this, but <laughs> it's fine. I think I, I, I may have asked that question first of Nikki Osborne, who was there, and then right. a couple other people that have stayed with him. I, I think I just keep asking that question. Who, who have been at Irvine, so. Absolutely. Okay. Um, all right. Well, this week we finish off our kind of trilogy of statistic interviews. Started off with Cedric Newman, then we interviewed Henry Swafford, and now on to uh, Christophe Champeau today. So speaking of uh, this little trilogy that we're doing, wanted to read off a nice email that we got from um, – also one of our, our patrons, uh, that'd be uh, Lincoln from Colorado, uh, who wrote in to say, just listen to the most recent podcast with Swafford. I wanted to thank you both for bringing up and touching on uh, questions uh, that, that uh, were sent in. It made some very informative dialogue and also provided a great breakdown of demystifying FR stat for us non-statisticians. I really think these sorts of topics and discussions made widely available for public consumption through the podcast are extremely beneficial to the science. So thank you, Lincoln, and we we're glad to uh, to do that interview and bring it to you guys. Uh, so great to hear back some feedback on uh, you know someone who appreciated that episode. Well, this week, Eric, as you know, uh, we had a chance to interview Christophe Champo, Professor Christophe Champo, over in Lausanne, Switzerland. And I, I was very excited to do this. I, we, we had been talking about doing this for a long time, 
but really waiting for the technology to be right so we can interview people internationally and it sound good and so forth and not, you know, cost us hundreds of dollars to, you know, call <laughs> on the phone. But uh, it was very gracious of Christoph to uh, give us his time and speak with us. I, you have to realize I, I have great respect for him as um, as a leader in the field, as an educator, as a and 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 as a friend and a mentor. I mean, he he really. I remember when I got my thesis back from him. And I remember seeing every page with just markings and, you know, um, corrections and these things. And I just remember that, you know, heavy feeling in my heart of, oh, this is going to take a month just to, you know, go through these. But w- as I went through, I realized every single suggestion was correct. And I just kept going, yep, he's right, he's right, he's right, he's right. And I, and I like working with people who are just so insightful and so helpful and they make your projects better they make you better you know you become a better scientist a better writer a better researcher and i and i owe a lot of that to christoph so this was a real pleasure to be able to interview him and you know really i in in some ways sort of the father of fingerprint statistics i mean he's really pushed you know this envelope forward you know in in the last couple of decades so it it really was a great honor yeah yeah i that just I'm just smiling now thinking about that. I love when I uh, write something and then get back just you know loads and loads of comments and strike throughs and and it's like you know you you when I give someone out to something when I give something out to somebody to read like that and it comes back just you know as it was right. you know then it's like yeah. yeah just like great you're like well you know did you even did read, you read it, it? yeah mm-hmm. but when yeah. it comes back yeah. covered is like oh you cared enough to actually you know go through it and dive deep and i love that so yeah anyway um yeah let's uh let's move into the interview because we both had a great time talking to christoph uh on all of this uh fingerprint forensic statistic stuff today we're very Happy to continue our series talking about statistics, probabilities, all this math stuff, <laughs> as we laughed about in the previous episode. Uh, but uh, today, a very warm welcome from the W Podcast to Christoph Shampo joining us all the way from Switzerland. Uh, uh, so welcome very much, uh, Christoph, to the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to join you. Hi, Christoph. Hi, Glenn. And this is uh, for the listeners who may not know. Uh, I had a chance to meet Christoph. I think it was in 2004 at uh, the the 100th anniversary of the of uh, the introduction of fingerprints in the United States. It was in St. Louis, so it was at the World Fair Expo fairgrounds. And uh, that was was that one of your first times coming over for the IAI? Yes, you're right. It was my first IAI meeting. Yeah. And and this is when we first had a chance to collaborate a little bit and, and work together. Before that, we had only spoken on the phone, which, uh, you know, I had just made some publications a couple of years before. And we talked about the potential of me joining the Lausanne program. And so I was very excited, uh, very excited to meet you there. And it was, what, eight years later that the thesis was finally published and finished it took its time, but it, it, we finally got there. Indeed. And uh, for you, how was, how was that first experience at the IAI? 
I've, I've, I really enjoyed that, 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 uh, II meeting, like every II meeting. Unfortunately, I don't, I cannot come every year because, uh, it's always in the middle of summertime and, uh, family time at, in, at summertime is, is, uh, is, uh, taking over all the time. So, but I'm, I'm hoping to come back in one of the next II meeting. But indeed, the meeting where together it was my first. I went to a second one in San Diego. Uh, but it was um, it was a very nice experience. Uh, we just had uh, published the first edition of the the, the fingerprint book with uh, Militin, uh, and Militin was at the II as well. So we had an opportunity to meet our readership and discuss with people, and it, it was an absolutely delight. Yeah, we we also had a chance to see the the anatomy of an error. This is when Ken Moses and Steve Meager presented on the, the Mayfield error, and that I mean that was just such a fascinating presentation. Yes, you're right, and um, in fact, I had uh, I I had um, a nice anecdote about about uh, this um, the, the concept of error because um, in two thousand and one. Uh, and, and a few other of your listeners were, were there as well. Uh, the, the, the Scotland Yard organised the 100 years of fingerprinting in the UK. And Ken Moses was in the back of the room. And I remember well because I was sitting not, not far from him. Uh, and um, the whole meeting was about um, how 100 years of fingerprinting has been absolutely fantastic and, and um, how rock solid the discipline was and <laughs> never a mistake had been detected and so on. <laughs> Allegedly, because as you know, there had been some issues in the UK as well, but that was always kept under the carpet. And then from the back of the room, Ken raised the hand and said, and, and that will echo to the forthcoming case uh, uh, in, in the Madrid bombing, and Ken said that um, if we want to make any progress in, the, in this discipline, we should we should face the prospect of making mistakes and stop barking uh, and congratulating ourselves that we never do. And oh, that was quite a premonition uh, about what will happen uh, in a few years later. Oh, I, I yeah, I'd never heard that. That that is pretty fascinating. That re- really is uh, from that perspective and uh, of. Ken Moses, uh, who, uh, if listeners aren't familiar with the uh, the Madrid bombing case, was hired on by the uh, defense, by Brandon Mayfield's team, to review the fingerprint identification, but also made the same error as the FBI examiners in calling it a uh, correct identification uh, before it being revealed by the uh, the Spanish police to, to be incorrect. Well, in, in, in this case, Ken was... Um... He was not hired by the defense, but it was in the, the, the judge. True. The judge had an opportunity, when, when he listened to the FBI expert, had an opportunity, given the gravity of the case, to, to act for an independent, some sort of court, court-appointed expert. True, that, that is an important distinction. And, and in fact, it, it, as I recall, it's one of the reasons that the judge was unwilling to let him out of jail and because the judge was considering of even um, letting him out for a period of time, um, posting bail, so to speak. But because of that, uh, because of that decision and that he had hired effectively a, an expert for the court and the gravity of the crime, uh, the judge I, it said something along the lines of, given this – and the severity of, of this crime, I, I can't allow this person to be out of jail. Right. 
Well, let's let's back up into uh, Christoph, your your career and your introduction to forensics. It's the standard question that we start off with uh, all of our interviews with, which is uh, how you ended up in this forensic field. Was this a passion from your youth, or did you kind of uh, trip and stumble into uh, forensics? I I started forensic science directly at the University of Lausanne. So when I when I finished the equivalent of the high school, uh, I was facing the prospect to go to university. And essentially at that time, I I went by exclusion. Um, I was sure I, di- I didn't want it to do something, one di- only one discipline. I really enjoyed the, the prospect of doing more than one discipline. And also I didn't want to go into arts or sociology or psychology alone. And by exclusion, all of a sudden, I ended up to look at this program called Forensic Science. In, in French, was named Police Scientifique. Um, and uh, I looked at the content, and it, re- it, it ring a bell in me, and saying, well, this is interesting, because you could do chemistry and physics and maths and um, a, a range of hard sciences. And at that time, it was also coupled with a range of soft sciences, so to speak. It was covering sociology and criminology and psychology as well. Uh, and I felt that what, that was really speaking to me as an opportunity to develop. Um, in fact, it was maybe at the time a, a no choice. I didn't have to make any choice. I could pursue to study various things. Uh, so I started the program. It was um, a four-year program, um, and I really enjoyed it very much. At the end of the program, and the other element of luck is I started by that program in '86. '86 was the year that the director of the institute changed. So I was part of the first group of students of Pierre Margot taking over at the University of Lausanne. Uh, and when I finished the four-year degree, the Pierre Margot had an opportunity to hire a number of research assistants to start PhDs. Before that, the whole school over almost a century hadn't had a lot of PhDs, but Pierre Margot was very directed towards research. The, for him, uh, the research was the, the real blood of any academic institution. So he obtained money to hire quite a large group of PhD students, and I had the chance to be one of them. When it comes to fingerprints, it's, there is an element of, of um, history behind this because we were a class of, um, of, I think we started like 10 PhD students at the same time, maybe a bit less, and um, everything was available. So we could choose whatever we wanted, ranging from microtraces, fibers, paint, and uh, DNA, whatever. And um, at that time, in 1990, uh, another element, and I, I really believe everything is down to luck at some, to some degree. It's down to probabilities. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ian Evett came to Lausanne, and Ian Evett knew Pierre Margot from the past because they had been working close together at some point when Pierre was in Birmingham. And Ian Evett came to Lausanne to look for the, the source of the origin of the 16-point standard in the UK. It happened that it was based on these famous images where Bertillon um, 
attempt to highlight the fact that you may, under special circumstances, find two people with more than 16 points in agreement. And these images that were lost in uh, New Zealand and uh, came back in the UK in the 50s were at the basis of a 16-point standard, but the original article was never found. So Ian Evett, when he was working with Ray Williams, came to Lausanne to look into our library and digged out the paper, which, in fact, was not a paper in favour of a 16-point. That, that's a different story. <laughs> but it, the 16-point images was the only thing that was kept uh, by the, the English uh, to support the, the argument to have 16-point in common. So Ian Evett came back and gave the lecture as, uh, at the end of my degree. So the guest lecturer, uh, when we received our diploma, was Ian Evett, and he exposed some issues about forensic science. He stressed the importance of interpreting evidence differently, and that was, for all of us in the room, a huge shock. Um, and then a few days later, I remember Pierre Margot called me in his office, and he looked at me and said, you know what, maybe we should do something about this 16-point standard. I mean, in Switzerland at that time, we were ruled by a 12-point point rule. Uh, and Pierre Margot said to me, hmm, we should be able to do some statistics with this. We should be able to demonstrate whether or not we need 16 or 12 or whatever number from a statistical perspective in order to make an identification. And Pierre was the type of professor that when he was... Uh, whispering an ID in your ear, you will go out of his office thinking that's the only thing you wanted to do on earth. <laughs> so I started fingerprint that way. Well, a little uh, perspective that that image that you're referring to it shows a latent and an, uh, or two known prints, I believe. It's two known prints, yes. And Bertillon, I mean, his main argument in the paper was that experts should not only look at elements in agreements. Uh, he wanted to make the point that experts should be aware that discrepancies are probably the, the, the most important element that anyone should look at when doing comparison and not being um, blinded by the, uh, the agreement. So to do that demonstration, he took two fingerprints from two, indi two different individuals and he masked uh, all differences. So all the differences were masked with black areas and he left available only the um, apparent agreement uh, and, and that was going up to roughly 16 points. Uh, and the apparent agreement was even further illustrated by using some drawings. So Bertillon drawed around around the bifurcation and the ridge ending to make you to make you see something in agreement. Now, his point was not the agreement and the need for 16 points. His point that was that an expert should not be blinded by just looking right. at agreements, but should consider the disagreements. But that was lost in the history. And the, the, the blacked out areas made, made the print very amoeba shaped. There's all sorts of cropped areas that go in and out and then long arms that to, you know connect to a similarity it, it's very interesting to see how much cropping you needed to do to get all this stuff to line out and eliminate the differences you're absolutely right 
And and I, I just thought it'd be interesting to point out too for listeners because of this little time discrepancy. I mean, we're talking about the late '80s, and you know, Ian Evett is coming uh, to the University of Lausanne, and this was right around the time that he had finished the research, which listeners may be familiar with the sixteen review of the sixteen point standard in England and Wales, because that wasn't actually published until '95 or so. But the research was done, I think '80. 786 somewhere somewhere around in the the late 80s so that would have been right around in that time he had conducted that research for for that article yes glenn i mean you you have to 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 know and this is this is information that was not made really public but the home office sat on the evett and williams report for many years and they were looking for the appropriate time to make that report available and to take some actions following that report. It came, it became public for the first time and published at the Nurim conference, which I right. had the chance to attend as well. And the Nurim, con- in Isra- the Nurim, Nurim conference in Israel was put together by Yossi Almog with a view of bringing together all the the people associated with fingerprint evidence. And it was an opportunity for the English authority and especially for the chief constable or associate chief constable in charge of the 16-point project to come and deliver the speech in association with the 16-point rule. So that was, the the report was made available to to the Home Office in the 90s, early 90s, but made public only in 95. Right. And, and this, you know, I, I, what I'm pointing out is this was a huge turning point, I think, in some ways, because it really began to poke holes at the idea. And I think Ian Ebbett even says it in the paper, the concept of fingerprints being, quote unquote, an exact science. And that this was really the first research that looked at any performance of examiners and found that there were, in fact, issues. Yes, to my knowledge, it is the first the first um, exposure. That's something that we know perfectly well today, that if you give the same images to a range of fingerprint examiners, asking them to annotate either in analysis or in comparison how many minutiae they can see, they will see different things. And the numbers, the range, and the shock came from the ranges of numbers. It could range from case to case between, on the same case, seven minutiae and someone else seeing 37 minutiae. So a huge variation (laughs) among examiners. So it was so patently obvious that they, 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 it was some sort of a mirage. The 16-point standard was a mirage because judges were believing uh, that everybody will see up to 16 and right. they will see exactly the same 16 points. So the, the strength of a 16-point argument was, was completely destroyed by the observation that between experts you will have huge variations. And it is still the case today. Right. What's so interesting to me on this is that I, I think a lot of uh, younger, newer examiners that you know have seen the black box and the white box and all these studies since these initial things back in the 80s and 90s just kind of take it as an obvious thing that, of, well, of course, examiners are, you know, some examiner may not see a certain point and you know, another one will. But it was such a you know, revolutionary thought to introduce back then. And the, the field almost just didn't want to believe it. 
uh, because the 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 final answer was what was always had been compared and if two examiners both say id then the assumption was that they saw basically the same things but it was really a shocking thing to show how how different different examiners were even if they were reaching the same conclusion yes yes people were were very surprised if not shocked but i think thinking back about it i think people were shocked of the what I call the cost of transparency. All of a sudden, it was it was exposed, right. but people knew that. I mean, it was like a dirty little secret. Uh, and the dirty little secret that we have today is to think that even if we adopt the sort of I call it the laissez laissez faire approach of the AI, that all examiners will reach the same conclusion watching the same images, and that there is a there is a, there is no variations in the conclusion reached. We may differ on what we see, but at the end of the day, we agree on the conclusion. Now, the, our today's dirty little secret is exactly. that people don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> and and when, you, you, when you push people to the limits, of course, when we talk about very easy marks, there is, there, is, there is more commonality. But when we push people to the limits and we take cases which are at the fringe of the decision-making, um, the decision boundaries, you will have huge differences up to a 50-50 split in a classroom. And right. that is, uh, that, I think that that should be considered further in the future of fingerprint science. Right. And in fact, that's a nice lead-in because one possible way to address that, of course, might be with statistical models. And, you know, this was, again, another great advantage of um, uh, me being able to go to the University of Lausanne and and learn about uh, a completely different approach to fingerprints than I had been exposed to in the U.S. So, uh, Christoph, if you wouldn't mind, could you take us through some of the early days of the models and how you got involved in studying statistics and the application of probabilities to fingerprints and, and obviously the development of the first computerized fingerprint statistical model? Well, it all started by by when I embarked into this PhD, and um, the well, I, I remember at some point I, I tried, I reviewed the literature, and you came across uh, papers, and one of them is from Osterberg, for example, who counted minutia on, on fingerprints, uh, laying down a, a square millimeter grid on the image and counting every Evans from top to down, uh, and he counted on thirty nine fingerprints. And I remember, well, I did the same. At some point, I said, well, I, I, I try to do it by hand, counting things and see how often you find a bifurcation, a regending, and how they are related to each other. Uh, what is the distance between these minutiae and the core? And, and, um, and I realized it took, me, it took me five hours to do one fingerprint <laughs> to have a decent analysis. Excruciating. Uh, so then I understood why the Osterberg team had only 39 prints. <laughs> and, uh, and it was obvious that I didn't want it to, do, to go down that line. So computerized analysis of fingerprints was a given. It was, it, there is no other way uh, to gather enough data to understand the distribution of minutiae and their relative frequency than to go down by using image processing techniques. But I knew absolutely nothing about image processing. So a good, a good, my first three years, if not four, four years of PhD were uh, about developing image processing system in order to extract automatically minutia, 
to relate them to a skeleton, to follow minutiae along skeletons and to document how often you find a regending and bifurcation uh, and combined minutiae because I had uh, great hope to use the, the specific types of minutiae, an island, hook, double bifurcations and so on. So, yes, I designed uh, some, some early days image processing algorithm to count them and to document them as in relationship to the core, for example. And from these data, uh, we managed to show, um, to give some information about relative frequencies at a large, larger scale than Osterberg uh, on a sample of about a, a thousand fingerprints. We could show that there is mirror effect between right and left. There is effect of a delta. There is different densities of minutia, whether you look at the core or if you look at the periphery. Uh, and that so that that these relative frequencies could not be tabulated in a in a single table like you can see in most papers even nowadays, but they have to be accounted. You have to account for the pattern. So the concept of pattern force was obvious because we could show uh, that indeed there is some types of minutiae that are much more frequent in some areas than others. In, in fact, uh, as I recall, I mean, this was something that Stoney had addressed just a few years previously about, you know, the ideal model and that these minutia configurations were really what were important, these interrelationships. And your model really helped demonstrate that and showed that not only are these configurations important and just taking simple, you can have a simple arrangement of minutia, but if you just rearrange that configuration to opposed bifurcations and spurs, the same number of minutia, the specificity could increase by orders of magnitude and also differed by where they were present within the fingerprint. And your model really was able to demonstrate that on a firsthand basis. Yes, yes, Dave, Dave Stoney, uh, is a nice background history to this. Dave, Dave studied, um, in Berkeley and did his PhD. Um, and he's, he's studied mainly thumb prints. Um, but he showed already in his thesis that indeed bifurcation and regending at different relative frequencies. Uh, and I remember well because, you know, thinking back in the, in the time, and we are talking about 19, I started my PhD in 1990. Availability of information over the internet was was very sparse, and um, and I remember when when Pierre came to me, Pierre Margot came to me and dumped the Stoney's PhD on my desk. It was after one year of me in the PhD, and I looked at this and said, "Oh my God, there is nothing else to do." Because I mean, <laughs> Dave Stoney had done such a man magnificent job on on the topic. And then Pierre said to me, in addition, Dave Stoney would be on your committee as an expert. And I thought, <laughs> oh, I'm going to die. It's just impossible. Um, but the advantage of the image processing is that it allowed to expand the, the data set to a number of prints and different type of general patterns and fingers that Dave Stoney could not uh, go into. But essentially, I mean, Dave and I did exactly the same thing. Uh, the, he has been quite too kind to me in, at, at numerous occasions saying that it was a breakthrough because I think the real breakthrough is down to Dave, uh, and, and, and down to Kingston, which who was the other, uh, PhD student from Berkeley, uh, in 1964, who was just saying exactly the same thing 
the big difference was the arrival of computer-based systems that allowed to extract quite easily. At that time, it was not easy, but it quite easily nowadays to extract these features and to make some statistics on these features. And, so, and, and also a large data set, because again, as you point out, there were even Stoney's was what, 500 maybe, but yours was approaching a thousand, which was the, you know, the largest of its kind. Yes, it was at the time the largest. And um, at, again, as, as a matter of luck, um, Pierre Margot had good contact with the head of fingerprint, um, the central fingerprint bureau in Switzerland in Bern. So we took the train to get there. Uh, in 1990, they were running an AFIS system. Um, it was um, it was running on um, previously, it was a Delary print track system. And um, Pierre Margot and I thought, huh, that will be easy. We just plug a, a hard drive on their system and we can go home with all the fingerprint <laughs> image we want. <laughs> then, of course, I mean, that is not even possible today, as you know. Uh, but we, that was a sort of naive thought that we had in, in the early days. And I remember that train trip to Bern when we thought, well, if we can extract all these features directly from the AFIS system, then I don't need to develop all the clever image processing devices to extract these minutia because the template from the AFIS will give them to me. No, it never occurred that way. I had to design the algorithm to extract the template. Now, nowadays, in fact, we use an AFIS system to extract every feature we want to analyze because they are, a, they are fantastic tools to do this. But Burn allowed us to go and to search their 10 print forms and to scan every image we wanted for the PhD. So I sat in Bern with a, with a, with a flatbed scanner, which costed <laughs> a fortune because we wanted to have a thousand DPI images. And, we, and I went through the file manually uh, because I wanted to have selected fingers and selected journal pattern and also rich count but the beauty of the, the Swiss cuckoo clock is that every every the, the classification was maintained pristinely, and it yeah. was very easy for me to go through the file and find what I wanted. Uh, another constraint was quality. Uh, the, the the algorithm I designed were not very happy with low quality images, uh, and I had to choose good, well taken prints in order for the algorithm to require to be able to extract these features so i i went through the a number probably a few a few a few tens of thousands of of, of uh, 10 print files to make the selection of the prints that will end up in the phd a quick break here in the interview. I wanted to mention uh, the new sponsor for the Devloop podcast, uh, Go Evidence Forensic Laboratories, a full-service independent forensic laboratory that specializes in the development of latent fingerprint evidence. They serve law enforcement, private parties, corporations, private investigators, prosecution, and defense cases. Go Evidence is committed to providing the highest standards of excellence with the most advanced technology available in the industry. Their experienced staff is ready to work with you on any criminal or civil investigation. Your direct source to vacuum metal deposition technology, they can process your cold case evidence with VMD. They provide sales, service, and training. Brian and Scott are passionate about the technology and always enjoy the chance to talk about the capabilities of VMD, VMD systems, consumables, 
and tips on maximizing the process. You know, they started Go Evidence ten years ago now, and uh, it, you know, with this kind of idea, this dream to set up uh, this technology and, and provide it as a resource to you know more and more labs that don't have their own system, and you know, they really have uh, become the leaders in uh, in this VMD technology. Uh, standard turnaround times on most cases is two weeks, and consultations are always free. So go to goevidence.com for more info. Yeah, you know, and I've been using them now for a few years, too, yeah. and they're great to work with. I, I really recommend agencies, especially agencies that have cold cases or need additional processing or those kinds of things. Um, or you know, want to do VMD, but they don't have it, but they think this case deserves it. Reach out to them. You know, you, you'll find them to be very reasonable in their prices and very reasonable and, and do good work. So I, I, I highly recommend using them whenever possible. And, and plenty of police agencies have been using them for years now as well. Yeah. All right. So let's go back to the interview with Christoph. Uh, so this is all still living in the research world of, uh, of all these models, all this development. What were some of the earliest discussions about actually utilizing any of these models that you guys are res- researching with in actual casework and having that somehow um, going into the work or the reports that the uh, latent print examiners in Switzerland or anywhere else uh, was actually reporting uh, or testifying to. Yes, the, you're right in saying that most of these models for, for many years remain in the hands of a few uh, and uh, were not available um, in, in, in a very easy way. Uh, the FSS tried to develop, and probably Cedric alluded to it, to develop a, a software which could at some point be made available to fingerprint experts and to be deployed operationally. Uh, that had what was stopped uh, when the FSS collapsed and, uh, and was closed. So the first time I, I said that we were ready to do case work is when Nicole Egli, uh, who was one of my PhD students, reported at the EIFS meeting in Helsinki that her model was ready. Now, her model was still, was still a model in the hands of a few, but I think we had reached at that time a state of development where it's, it, it, it started to be conceivable to use it in practice. Before that, it, it, it was in Helsinki at the uh, European Academy of Forensic Science meeting. And I think it. it's not, it's 2006. Yeah. And in fact, uh, Christoph, because I, I was still, or I was at Lausanne at the time in, in the program, eventually I had a chance to use Nicole's model uh, to test a few things throughout my thesis. So it was actually one of the, the ways I was able to generate a likelihood ratio for some of my images as well. And that was the early days, and certainly it was still in the hands of a few. So we hadn't done any case work at the time, but I, I mentioned that if someone would like to send us a case, we'll be happy to consider it. Uh, the difficulty was um, the the model was requiring multiple images of the putative source to have a feel for the within-source viability. And that was a stumbling block because we yep. need, Nicole needed in her model at least eight prints from the individual in order to compare them together in order uh, to same, get the same source images the same from the same source right 
So it means that practically speaking, if you had a case, you needed to have the individual wishing and willing to give you uh, a number of 10 print cards, which was completely incompatible with standard practice. The huge breakthrough is when you have a distortion model, which is what we have at the moment. Now, the distortion model is what um, Lausanne developed for the FSS to be incorporated in their development. Uh, And that was based on work done in uh, the Netherlands by uh, a a researcher who applied elastic distortion techniques to to, um, show how fingerprints may be distorted when a finger is applied on a surface. And that work from that man called Bazin, we we use the same principles and the same techniques, and it is based on well-known uh, elastic models uh, used in other areas, but fingerprints. But we have applied this to to develop a model which can offer the possibility to generate algorithmically distortions based on a fingerprint image in different directions and with different ex- extent. So that allowed to overcome the limitation of getting multiple prints from that person to model his or her within source viability, we could immediately generate as many pseudomarks from a print, and these pseudomarks will mimic what you expect as a mark on a, on a surface when the finger is, is, is put on that surface. And that is the game changer. The distortion model allowed to have a system where you can you can make you can make and produce Likert ratios based on a single image, and that was the that was the real breakthrough. And uh, we developed the model for VFSS. We, we encapsulated that model in their in their system, and now in uh, the the model we have in Lausanne, it's exactly the same model we have uh, we have introduced. Now this this new model you have in Lausanne now I'll fast forward all the way to 2018. Uh, this is being used by the Swiss police. Yes. Oh, 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 oh. hold on a second. <laughs> okay, hold on. It it is used by us, and um, in fact, I I I generated one of my first statements in a in a, in a, in a Swiss case because I'm acting as a as a as a fingerprint expert from time to time on demand. By uh, by authorities, I we issued uh, the first report a few months ago uh, using the model. Police forces, uh, there is some police forces in Switzerland which have um, privileged access to the model and they use it um, in their practice. The reporting, they use it as a as a as a complement to their decision making process. They use it also right. to explore how cases that will be deemed inconclusive could be potentially reported with a weight of evidence uh, thanks to the statistics uh, output from the model but it is not standard practice every day in every in every fingerprint bureau in Switzerland so it's still a model which is in more in research than in practice however we recently got the the, the, in, the full integration of the model with a with our uh, fingerprint comparison system, which we call Pianos. So we, now Pianos, and which could be made available to any of your re, your your listener, uh, the 
pianos is coupled with a model. It means that someone can do his comparison in pianos using the tools we designed for it, and you can compute the Likert ratio directly uh, in pianos. And I think the availability of a tool is really what makes uh, the future looking completely different. The fact that this tool is not something which you need to hire a specialist, an IT specialist, or to go to the researcher who only him or her know how to tweak and touch the button to get an output, to be able to do it from your work, your, 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 your workspace uh, directly in a, in, a, in a fingerprint compatible comparison interface and to get the Likert ratio directly out of it, that will change how things are done. Yeah, and in, in fact, Christoph, uh, you know, now that uh, you've been able to provide me with access to the model, that what you just described was exactly right. Uh, because pianos itself, it, there's a little bit of learning to it, but it's relatively easy to understand. And pianos yeah. is just this annotation system. It's just a way to enter your your latent and your known print and mark them up and, and do basically digital annotation of your images. But now with the model behind it, it, like you said, it's just a click of a button away and it, it will output a number. And one of the things that uh, Eric and I want to do is actually do some video and do a little bit of, we've got an area of sponsored content for people that listen to the podcast where we would do some videos and run through a few examples showing how to to use it and and what the output looks like and and so forth so we're going to probably add that in the next month or so that's wonderful uh and the well the i owe uh the integration of the model behind pianos to to my current phd student his name is marco de dono and Marco is doing his PhD on the validation and integration of uh, a Likert ratio system for fingerprint evidence. He's a wizard when it comes to multi multiprocessing systems and designing things where you can have an output and in a full integration of very complex algorithm immediately. So it's thanks to Marco that we were able to give it directly in Pianos two models. One allows you to compute what we call the expected Likert ratio in analysis. The expected Likert ratio is not the real Likert ratio we'll get in comparison phase, but it is the one, the best one, the, the, the maximum Likert ratio you can hope based on the features you have put on the mark. And uh, the other one is once you got into the comparison phase based on the features you have annotated between the mark and the print. And uh, the system is done in a way that it, it, can, it can accept a lot of transactions. There is an, a form of, compu of, of processors available to feed the results back because every time you click on the little button, there is millions of comparisons which are down done back in Lausanne on our server against an AFIS system. And it is thanks to the score of coming back from these AFIS systems that the Likert ratio is computed. So it was, it was a huge undertaking and it required very specialized knowledge to make, to make this simple click, as you described, which is exactly what we wanted, <laughs> but to make this happen. And I have been extremely fortunate 
to have Marco to, to do that. Because now, when you compute a Likert ratio from your desk, it takes roughly 30 seconds to come back with a full PDF report with all the data associated with your case and all the chain of custody is fully maintained. And the availability of that tool is, is in my view, the only way we can bring this to every examiner's desk. Mm-hmm. And, and if you could, what, what's the idea behind the expected likelihood ratio? How would an examiner use a likelihood ratio coming in the analysis phase? Huh. So the expected likelihood ratio is something that we are currently working on in an NIJ-sponsored project with Dave Stoney. And Dave Stoney uh, was awarded on a project where they look into how many marks are currently left out, if I may say so, of the criminal justice system because they are declared to be of no value. And among these marks... There is a lot of marks which will bring you some value in terms of features. They are limited, they are of low quality, but even though they might not be declared to be of value for identification if I take approach the approach one of Swigfast, they might still bring something to uh, in a case. So we decided to explore how we can assign, just on the merit of a mark alone, its weight. What is the worth of that mark in terms if if we if you had the chance to give me the pristine print that is at the source of that mark, what would be the weight of evidence we would obtain? So we compute a Likert ratio which we call expected because of course it is not the known Likert ratio, the one we will obtain later, but it is the best we could dream of, so to speak thinking of a mark, and you think in yourself, if I got the perfect print, which will fit exactly with these features, even though there is a limited number of these features, what would be the weight of evidence I can expect from this? So to do that, we do uh, some computation. We construct some sort of a pseudo case with uh, the mark and a pseudo print, which will correspond perfectly, and based on this sort of print-to-print comparison, we derive a Likert ratio, which we call the expected Likert ratio. That number is not the number you will report in a case, in comparison phase. That number is just a number allowing to f- get a feel for the worthiness of pursuing the case. Is it really worth investing time? So it is an in- indirect quality measure. So in, apart, instead of talking about quality measures in terms of how good the mark is and whether you see the ridges and whether there is some metric to reflect on the quality of the image itself, this is down to what these minutiae are worth. And if they are worth a lot, it's worth investing in pursuing the case. So down the road, when OSAC may release some sort of standard that requires validation behind, or at least empirically driven data behind a suitability requirement for an agency, one could anticipate that 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 expected likelihood ratio could help an agency effectively validate their quote-unquote suitability requirements. Yes, and it it is down to priorities. It seems to me absolutely obvious that in an agency which has facing a lot of backlog with a lot of volume crime, 
you raise the bar higher, you will process only marks which have that high expected Likert ratio because you don't want to spend too much time on things which have which are of lower evidential value. And if it is a very serious crime and you have unlimited resources to solve it, you will bring the, the threshold down and process marks which can bring more moderate but still very useful weight of evidence to the case if needs be. Mm-hmm. Now, now the, the this potential suitability, uh, that that's based largely on the comparison of this latent to everything in that big database that you have uh, accessible. So if it stands out as not being like really anything in there, then it would be more suitable for comparison. But if there's other stuff in that database that also seems to kind of line up, then it's eh, maybe not worth uh, moving forward with. Oh, you're absolutely right. So when... Um when the expected Likert ratio is computed, the mark is searched on a million data, million fingerprint database, and the specificity of the features you have annotated will be measured. So that's how the Likert ratio will be high only if it's very difficult to find some common agreements within the boundaries of the, of the algorithm right. in the million fingerprints. That's how you know that you have some worth going with it. That's just brilliant. I, I, I can't wait for the day where, where all these, these tools that are just beyond reach are, are really at my fingertips. Well, Ray, these tools are at your fingertips. The only thing you have to do is to send a message to 4C at unil.ch and ask for an account, and that will be done. All right. Uh, so you, you said you, you that uh, for the first time this was brought into a courtroom setting in Switzerland very recently, yes? Yes. And how did that go? Now, it was not brought in a courtroom setting because at the moment the case is still under investigation. Okay. Um, but it was delivered to a prosecutor and the prosecutor is moving this case ahead. Um, I may be called to court. Now, in Switzerland, we are re- very rarely called called in court because okay. of our more inquisitorial system as opposed to a very adversarial system. But it may happen that I will be called. And the prosecutor, is it? did it go over well? Was, uh, was there any surprise that there's a number now in fingerprints? Uh, was there a request to just, just tell me if it's him or not him? Or how did that go? Well, the, I think the experience of, of Henry is very similar. Uh, and he has more experience about this. I mean, a lot of people think that once you put a number on fingerprints, the, the, the earth will collapse and then everything <laughs> will come back to the lab right. saying, what, what the heck are you doing? And I, and, and I was, I was anxious. I mean, I was anxious on the phone with a prosecutor when I told him, look, I will never identify this print. And I told him why. And I said, but I will qualify this as a potential association with a number. And then I prepared my report, sent it to him, and never heard anything about it. So it seems to be all right. Okay. At least the earth did not collapse. <laughs> there was a giant earthquake in Alaska, but just, but just pointing that out. Coincidental. 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 So there is, there is this – I have heard this so many times that judges are expecting certainties. And if we fingerprint examiners are not delivering that to them – uh, they will never accept that type of evidence and they will never get over it. They do. 
I think as long as we are transparent about what we deliver, as long as we explain the limits and we explain the potential, judges are very intelligent people for most of them, uh, and they don't <laughs> need certainty to make decisions in their cases. Right, right. This is this is the history of forensics, uh, going all the way back to ABO blood typing, and and even currently with psychologists or medical examiners or you know, virtually all the other expert testimony that comes in, judges are prepared to handle uh, less than absolute certainty in the courtroom. They have no choice. They have done. They are doing this with every piece of evidence that are presented to them. The only special aspect of forensic science is that it is delivered by an expert who have knowledge which goes beyond the usual knowledge of the court. Right. But as 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 soon as we are, I would say, honest about the limits of forensic science and honest in saying that we don't have absolute certainty, every judge can handle this very well. I don't, I have no doubt. All right. So what, what would be next then for the model? Where are we in the validation of it? And what, uh, what do you foresee are the next steps to, to push the model? Uh, and, and I bring this up because, you know, we had Cedric on and we had uh, talked to Henry as well. And, you know, they both described their validation for this and, and how they went about and are going about effectively its release. What's, uh, what's your plan? The validation is important, and validation, in my sense, should be based on grand truth samples. So Marco, typically, at the moment, is uh, um, doing a large-scale validation exercise on the model using marks and prints of known sources. So I'm not talking about cases where, where an examiner was happy with the outcome. We are talking about cases where we actually know that that person left the mark because we witnessed it. Right. That grand truth sample allows you, if it is large enough, and we have a database of more than a few thousand of these, it allows you to generate cases where you actually know the state of affair and you would expect the model to guide you in that direction, same source, and you can do cases where you actually know they are from different sources because you build that up and you expect the model to guide you towards uh, the proposition that these marks and prints are coming from different sources. So these large-scale experiments are the validation exercise that Marco is, is, uh, is taking uh, at the moment. They are critical in validating these systems. As there is other... Um, critical element in the validation scheme, and they have been very well described by uh, by Didier Mervley and and another uh, and, and another co-author is called Araxim. The typically, what we are trying to show is that the model is not only guiding you in the right direction where it should, but also that it's behaving in a robust manner. By behaving in a robust manner, it means that if you have a comparison. Be, with with eight minutiae in agreement, you would expect that the Likert ratio will monitor, monitor will will go up for each minutiae you add right. to the pot. So it sure. has to show good behavior when you add information which drive towards the same source. The Likert ratio should move up when you drive. You put information which would drive towards the different source. The Likert ratio should go down. So we are we are doing large sets of simulations 
where you increase the number of minutiae and you decrease the number of minutiae and you look how the model behaves and it should behave coherently. So Marco, Marco's PhD is all about that. It's about, but to, as, as I alluded to, you want to make a lot of transactions with varying the number of minutiae. So you need a heavy IT system to undertake a validation exercise. So you need a form of processors in order to do all the transactions you want to carry out uh, in order to do these checks. But that's what we do at the moment. And have you had a chance to run any closed on matches through the model? And, you know, I mean, the one thing we expect with closed on matches is that they will, of course, have larger likelihood ratios than one might hope. But just curious what you guys are experiencing. Some models are better or, or um, you know, are in some ways better at detecting those little subtle differences. Any Any input on that? Yes, I mean we, we well a few weeks ago we uh, Marco and I were delivering a workshop in in England with uh, with twenty twenty five fingerprint examiners and uh, they may we make we made them work with pianos and the model part of the exercises we use with them uh, we had two cases of closed non matches on both of these cases. The model led to a Likert ratio which was lower than what we would expect if it was coming from the same source. Now, I need to be clear on this. It was lower, but still not guiding towards an opposite source. Right, right. right. And in fact, it goes down to the definition of what do we mean by close (laughs) non-match. The the cases had been carefully selected uh, and to, to fool potentially an expert. Yeah. And, uh, and and some experts were fooled with them. It means that there is some minutiae in agreement. The agreement is such that the distortion model will start to kick in and say, hold on a second, there is, there, is, there is variability here, which I will not expect if it is from the same source. So the distortion model will lower the Likert ratio as opposed to a case where everything will fit pristinely. But the model will still guide you a bit towards the wrong, so to speak, answer, because we actually know that we were coming from different sources. But it allows, it allows to, to have some sort of a red flag. It's, in fact, this, the red flag component is what matters most. These models allows you to double-check your judgment and see if there is any red flag that you need to investigate further. So Pat Vertheim introduced this concept of red flags in analysis and Dave Ashbrook as well in his book. And for these closed non-matches, the red flags are always on Mm -hmm. when you try to run closed non-matches through a model. Right. And and in fact, another way of looking at that is as you start to input your minutiae, you as an examiner, having used the model for some time, have this expectation of how the model should behave. You would expect these likelihood ratios to go up a certain factor each time you add in new minutia. But when it's not going up at that same rate or things begin to drop or you plug in a single minutia and it now drops the likelihood ratio unexpectedly, that's a great red flag. Either you've mismarked something or this feature is actually out of tolerance. Yes, absolutely. Um, and the, it, in fact, the, when you mentioned the, the Likert ratio we'd expect in a given comparison, what we noticed is that 
on average. And it's important to keep the average term because there is quite a large variance on the Likert ratio for a given number of minutia. But on average, it behave number of matching minutia is directly related to the Likert ratio. So if you have five minutia in agreement, the average Likert ratio will be 10 to the 5 or or 10,000. Six minutia will be a million. Seven minutia will be 10 million. Nine minutia, you reach a billion. Uh, As order of magnitudes and as a mean, because, of course, you may have cases with six minutia which will never reach a million because you are in the pattern force. And they will be down to 10 to the three. But when you input a close non-match, you will re- you will you will generally go half. At yeah. least it will be lower, much lower than the expected Likert ratio. Now, and and that, is, that is a great rule of thumb too, and and is held in several versions of different models, as well as even some other types of forensic evidence that basically for each. In, I don't want to say independent, but for each individual feature that you add, it, like you said, it, it tends to add a factor of 10. Yes, but be careful with that. I mean, first, it, it just, it's interesting because I started my work on the challenge of a 16-point standard. And then these models are showing that what is driving the, the decision process are minutia. I mean, they, they are showing clearly that there is something of value in a 12 slash 16 point rule. It was not completely out of the blue. What is striking is that you may have cases with a very limited number of minutiae, let's say seven minutiae, which will bring more value in terms of Likert ratio than 12 regending in a pattern force area. And right. the beauty is that experts nowadays, nowadays, normally experts should be aware of this and will detect them. But the model will detect them for them immediately. They will immediately red flag if you if you pair 12 minutia in a pattern force area, the model will immediately tell you, hold on a second, the best you can get out of this is a Likert ratio of 10 to the 5, 10 to the 6, no more. So don't, don't expect 10 to the 12 with your 12 right. minutia in this area. And that's, this is how I see the future. It will be, it will not be model against experts. It will be model with experts. The models are just a new, uh, a bit, a bit brand new for some of the examiners, but it's a new addition to the, the various elements they have to consider in reaching their decision. So Christoph, I mean, <laughs> It, we could spend days talking about the number of research projects that you've uh, conducted or, um, well, in, in fact, side side story, okay. just a quick side story here. When I was over in Lausanne and I was in your office and the first time I was there, I remember looking at your bookshelf and I would just, there are all these binders of amazing research sitting mostly in French in these binders of fantastic research studies that unfortunately hadn't been published or translated. I am amazed at the wealth of research that you and your students have conducted over the the years. And I'm sad that most examiners will not ever know or experience some of the research that's sitting in those binders. You've got research on creases and, uh, you know, minutia distributions and all kinds of amazing research. 
any way that'll ever get archived and <laughs> released out into the world? Well, they, they are archived. I mean, all our research, um, um, the, the, the master degrees typically of students are on file uh, and they are available. Uh, if anyone is interested uh, to have access to this, they will be made, made available, of course. We but they are written in French. <laughs> they are written in French. Now, the hope, again, machine may help us there because if you take Google Translate from French to English, you will be surprised by the quality of what you yeah, can get. Yeah, that's pretty good. I've done that before. So, so the indeed, I mean, you mentioned the research on creases. The model we, are, we have talked about, most of them are focused on are focused on level two features. Uh, so I call them a little bit, they are, they are myopic in a sense that they don't capture everything. Uh, one thing they don't capture, for example, is scar, uh, not scars, I would, I would like to say arm creases, or in, in some countries we call them white lines. So these little creases, which are very important, typically in palm print comparisons, um, there is, to my knowledge, absolutely no structured research about them. Examiners looked at them, examiners assessed them, examiners may have a feel for their variability uh, and, and selectivity, but we don't have any founding data to, 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 for creases. And some years back, and probably 10, 10, more than 10 years ago, uh, we did a very good um, research on creases on fingertips. Um, to show and demonstrate something which you probably know, that the orientation when you measure the angle of the creases and the occurrence of these creases are not completely random, and there is some of them which are more frequent than others, and we were able to measure that. But all this uh, has been delivered in French, I'm afraid, uh, <laughs> and it's part of our uh, the pleasure you get when you visit us. <laughs> yeah, it, no, indeed, it just, uh, it's... It, it was mind-blowing to see all the research. Well, in fact, it was humbling and scary to see how much research had been done when you walk into that institution, how much high-level research over the years has come out of Lausanne. It, it really is. It, it's fairly mind-blowing. But I wanted to ask you about upcoming research. Uh, you're involved in a number of things. Uh, you know, Heidi, uh, you know, some of the research now with Heidi Eldridge, who's a PhD student at Lausanne, uh, into uh, black box on palms. And there's uh, some other research in the pipe, uh, too, about close non-matches. Yes. And so I, as, as you alluded to, I, I mean, I am blessed for, by, by, by one aspect is that I had, I had the chance to have PhD students, which are absolutely fantastic. And you count on, on, on that group. So I have a chance to have ID Heldridge as a PhD student to, to head in the past yourself. I had uh, the chance to have Marco, as I mentioned him. Uh, and I have two new PhD students working on fingerprints as well. Henry is in, is, is now registered as a PhD student, Henry Swafford. Yeah. And that, I mean, essentially, without without students like you, oh, and Austin, none, Austin, none Austin of that, re- of course, or Austin as well, none of this research will be made available. I mean, the, the researchers are the real blood of the research. So at the moment, I'm involved in in uh, a lot of work with Heidi, which uh, we have been fortunate to be funded by the National Institute of Justice. Two projects are. Uh, up and running. One is the black box study on palm, 
which we tried to mirror the fantastic work done by Austin and others by the FBI uh, on fingertips. So we are collecting at a very large scale, using Pianos as the interface, of course, we are collecting um, decisions of experts, both in analysis and in comparison on Palm. And uh, the study acquiring, the acquire, acquisition of results will end end of December, if yes. I'm correct, mm-hmm. and will be, very, will be ready quite soon and will report at the II uh, the first results of the, the black box study on Palm. The second project, which we just have been awarded uh, by NIJ, is like, let me describe it as a crowd research initiative. And it's called ICNIMIL. And ICNIMIL is all about looking for close non-matches. There is nothing new in what we design here, but it is it is just the idea that has been tried and attempted by some labs in the past to gather and collect the cases where they have obtained closed non-matches. So what we decided to propose to NIJ is to federate forces, both in the US and in Europe, to have multiple labs who would agree to produce a database of known, grand truth established prints and marks on which you can build potentially proficiency tests uh, based on grand truth. And at the same time, to to invite laboratories to search for potential closed non-matches on their national APHIS systems based on the marks that have been donated by known donors, which hopefully will not be in the APHIS systems. (laughs) So when you bring together that we... We will bring together on a, on a single platform a collection of cases where you actually know the grand truth and a collection of cases where you, you, have, you did your best to find the closest print not coming from that, that, that source to be, to be put side by side with that mark. It gives you an, a fantastic tool to generate proficiency testing to act as a conduit for research, to generate research, uh, to generate training packages across agencies, uh, and that is that has been waited for so long in the community. I mean, that's yeah. we I, we are very excited by that. Yeah, that's it's brilliant, and uh, I'm so looking forward to seeing the results of that in a couple of years. So the results will be something which will we hope will be accessible to law enforcement agencies on they could log in, develop their cases, develop what we're going to name their packages, packages to use for training, packages to use for proficiency testing, uh, and that will serve as a central repository which could be made available to all law enforcement agencies worldwide. Uh, so that's I, I really think that we will finally help putting together pieces of of experience and knowledge that people have in their corners, that people exchange in a small community, like, oh, by the way, I have this closed on matches, haven't you seen this? You can find things on CLPEX, which are extremely informative, or on Ed German website. But to have this not only coming from anecdotal evidence, 
but to have a central repository where there is a strong willingness to share and to develop this, uh, to make it available to the community at large. I'm, I cannot, you can, you will not stop me on that project. <laughs> All right. Well, Christoph, I just want to say how much of a pleasure it's been talking to you. Uh, and, and like you just alluded to, we could probably go on, uh, for quite a while on all these different uh, research topics and papers from the past and stuff coming up in the future. Uh, I got a chance to talk with Heidi while she was here in Phoenix for the OSAC, and she was able to give me just a, a short preview of what she's seen so far from all that Palm data, and it really is exciting. But I think that means we're going to have to get you back on uh, for another episode over the next year or so. Uh, but uh, for the time you're sitting down here today with us uh, this morning or this evening for you over in Switzerland, uh, thank you absolutely so much for uh, for taking that time to talk to us. Uh, you're welcome. And um, I, I, will, I will come back anytime you ask. Well, thank you very much. And again, it, it is such a pleasure to listen to you, not only the history that you have, but the experiences all around the world, the cases you've been a, a part of or privy to, and then just the overwhelming research. And, and thank you for sharing your vision, too, about where we're going as a community of fingerprint examiners, because it's pretty exciting. And like you said, there are tools now that are fingertips that can change how we think about evidence and report evidence. Yes, tool at your fingertips. Uh-huh, that should mean something. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Unintended. Right. <laughs> oh, thank you very much, guys. All right. Well, Glenn, uh, another very interesting and and information-packed interview on statistics and fingerprints and 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 all this new technologies and where the field is, you know, is is really heading in the future. Uh, how do you think we did over the course of uh, Cedric, Christoph, and Henry. Oh, I, I, I think if listeners really want to get a flavor for the personalities, the issues. I think these three episodes together kind of lay things out. And each one takes it from a slightly different perspective. Yep. Each one has a very different personality <laughs> uh, and different viewpoints. Uh, you know what? You know what the end game is. And I, I, I think I think it's actually really fascinating. I hope we have not bored some of our new listeners to death with a topic that they, you know, especially some of the people that came on for the uh, more of the true crime stuff and those kinds of things. But man, I, I, I loved every minute of it. I, I really did enjoy this, this trilogy of guests. I really did too. And it, it's three people that we should have had on a long time ago, but uh, you know, it's, it's great that we, we get them on now and, uh, and can talk about it. And, and uh, what better time than when well, the use of these of statistics with fingerprints um, is is yeah is really here. It's it's uh, it's really in the courtroom, and it's it's spreading. And the nuances of of how this is all going to work in an actual workflow in an actual crime lab are are getting all hammered out and and whether or not your agency is going to be first in line or last in line <laughs> it's uh it, it's still important to know where where we're coming from where we're going what the some of the stumbling blocks are going to be and and how we can keep our eyes open and look out for those yeah 
I actually issued my first report with a likelihood ratio using, uh, well, Christoph's model. All right. That's the one through pian- with pianos? Yeah. That's fantastic. Now, um, quick question, because I've been playing around with it a little bit too. Uh, after uh, talking with Christoph and getting access, um, did was it just the the raw likelihood uh, ratio number? Or did you provide any of the uh extra stuff the numerator denominator or is it just the just the flat well number? i sent you a copy of that report to technically review so you clearly haven't done that yet <laughs> <laughs> but it, when you look at it you'll see that yeah i've got the likelihood rate the numerator the denominator and the overall calibrated likelihood ratio uh, i also have two likelihood ratios uh, because i use gyro I ran the green minutia through first and gave one statistic, so the the features I was sure of, and then the less reliable features, the yellow features, were second. I didn't run any red through. But, uh, you know, again, I think there are multiple ways to use these models. I don't think that any one number has to represent the fingerprint evidence. It may be, you know, it may be a number that's adjusted through training and experience and, um, you know, subjective uh, probabilities and some other things that you know we're, we don't have to we don't have to live and die by a single number when we use these models. There are ways to incorporate them into decision making. Yeah, absolutely, and as like we talked about, it all comes with that, that perspective, and we're going to gain the perspective of how to coach these numbers or how to give perspective to these numbers. Uh, you know, with yeah. some time, but. Uh, there's there's still a lot there's still a lot to do but it's exciting to to be where we're at so glenn you're in uh, california this week you've been talking about this idemia class um so that's that's here um but what else do you have coming up here in the near future so anyone who's interested in some of the classes, they, we've been adding a bunch of new ones to ronsmithandassociates.com. Please go to their uh, training uh, menu and you'll see a bunch of new classes that have been added. But you'll find uh, some in April in Hackensack, New Jersey, as well as Baton Rouge. Uh, I, speaking of Switzerland, uh, I'm teaching uh, for a couple weeks there with Alice Sorry, Alice White. I keep wanting to call her Maceo, but Alice White. <laughs> we're 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 teaching for the Swiss Federal Police there, and uh, but they invited to other international guests. So especially some of our more international listeners, you're welcome to join us there. Just reach out to me, email me, Glenn at Elite Forensic Services, and I'll get you more information. And then uh, also in 2019, we'll be, I'll finally be adding this testimony class. That I've been wanting to add for some time, and I'll be talking more about that as soon as we get some dates and location. But it's going to happen in 2019. So email me if you want a little more info, or if you're looking to earmark some money for training, and you want a class about courtroom testimony, big issues uh, being taught by me and at least another fingerprint examiner and uh, a defense attorney. And we've got a, a really interesting lineup on how we'll be presenting that information. But stay tuned for more info. No, that that sounds uh, fantastic. Uh, I don't know what an exciting way to uh, to get that courtroom testimony training. Then you know, with the lawyer there in the room. Uh, yeah, an experienced trial practitioner, and that, that's what's key. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so my classes coming up. I still got those ones in Hollywood, Florida. The Exclusionology class on the 8th to the 10th, 11th and 12th, the uh, Gyro and Photoshop class. 
You can sign up for one or for both. It'll be in the same location all week. So if you're interested in that, you can go to rayforensics.com for more information. I've got some other classes lined up for the rest of the year, but just have to uh, f- hammer out some of the final details before I can uh, you know, get those dates announced up here on the show. But you can check back to rayforensics.com uh, for more information. You can follow us at Double Loop Pod with Superfan Becca helping us out with that. And uh, we're here to announce a new Superfan joining the team. Uh, Superfan Gibby, right, Glenn? Yes, yes. Caroline Gibb from Australia. Well, she's now in Holland, but she has been a big fan of the show for and supporter of the show for many years. We interviewed her, I don't know, what, maybe a year and a half, two years ago? Something like uh, that. Time, something like time, that. Man, we... We started this thing in 2013, Glenn. This is year six, going to be year six for us here. Uh, it's just crazy to think that uh, how long we've been doing this. Uh, so it's also hard to remember <laughs> when we did certain episodes. But she's going to help with that. Uh, she's going to help uh, by listening to some old episodes just because he's such a great fan and uh, start to index some of the topics that we discuss uh, so that uh, our listeners and our patrons uh, can have a, a quick little, you know, just index of when we talk about certain topics and if they want to reference uh, a certain, I don't know, Dobbert or here we go, uh, statistics uh, or certain cases or news stories, courtroom decisions, stuff like that. They can uh, hopefully more easily find it than uh, just by looking at the titles of the shows. So thank you very much. Uh, Caroline for volunteering uh, with that and any other super fans out there that have an idea of how uh, you can help uh, just email us and we'll uh, we'll put you to work and let you join the ever-growing consortium of the double loop podcast I don't know something like that Um, but uh, thank you for Caroline and Becca for helping out with that Uh, if you want to just contribute just your dollar a month or, or however much you feel is is fair uh, to to get this great content every week. You can go to patreon.com slash double loop podcast and contribute there. Contact us, Eric at rayforensics.com, Glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Listen to us, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, give us ratings, reviews. We've broken into the top 400 science-related podcasts in the United States, according to Apple Podcast Tracking. So, yay for us. And, and top three in fingerprints. <laughs> We've been number one there for years. Um, yeah, that's true. But we actually, during our last session with the uh, Making a Murderer show, were even cracked into like the top 50. So, uh, with a lot of new listeners from that, thank you for everyone out there that supports and just even just shares uh, on Twitter or Facebook or likes or tell someone else about the podcast. We appreciate that too. So the opinions and uh, ideas expressed belong to the speaker and not anyone that we work for. And with that, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye everybody. Have a good week. Bye.